I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast in association with Advantage Go, enabling underwriters to increase the speed and accuracy of decision-making. As journalists, we tend to sprinkle superlative terms such as industry legend around a little too liberally, but today's guest definitely qualifies. As founder of Renaissance Re, Jim Stannard helped completely transform the way the industry analyzes and underwrites catastrophe risk and helped cement Bermuda's place in the insurance and reinsurance world. He also co-founded global challenger reinsurance broker, Tiger Risk. Now he is back in his heartland as chair of the newly independent Ariel Re. Here we talk about everything you would ever want to know about how to be a successful underwriter building a sustainable portfolio. Listening back, it's a remarkable conversation and one marked by Jim's extraordinary good humour and openness. We spent a lot more time laughing than is normal in a serious hard market reinsurance conversation. But that's all down to Jim's open-mindedness and remarkably broad interests. I hadn't met him before this meeting, but it really doesn't show. I learned a lot, including that this industry leader has a not unimportant sideline on the music scene. So do enjoy the conversation. A few notes. Jim told me later he misspoke about Lotus being the first spreadsheet package and meant to say VisiCalc. The quote about predicting the future is variously attributed to Yogi Berra, Sam Goldwyn, or Danish physicist Niels Bohr, depending on who you ask. And Jim's album, Colour Outside the Lines, can be streamed on Spotify and is available on Amazon and other music sellers. Go to jimstannardmusic.com to find out more. Enjoy the podcast. Before we get started, I'm here with Rick Lindsay, Chairman of Prime Holdings and the CEO of Claims Direct Access, who have kindly supported this podcast. Rick, first, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about the Prime Group and CDA and what they could do for our listeners? Sure. Prime Holdings is a holding company, and we're excited to expand our claims TPA service, Claims Direct Access, which is the exclusive claims manager for Prime Insurance Company and has managed claims for Lloyd's since 1995 when we've been on the Lloyd's line slip as a risk taker. So we plan on coming over to London and uh, hopefully providing our partners more flexibility where we can issue prime paper where necessary. We can support and take risk on the Lloyd's line slip and offer our superior claim service, which is evidenced by Prime's own loss ratio for the past 10 years. I believe that claims is the key to success in our business. That's really the only thing we do that adds value. Obviously, you can be a good underwriter, and if the claims falls apart, the underwriting's a waste of time. If you're a good underwriter, you need to balance the scale with good claims. So again, we're excited to bring superior claim service to the Lloyd's marketplace and offer the ability to share risk alongside them as we manage the claims. Well, thanks so much, Rick. And I'll make sure there are all the right links in the podcast notes. And let's get on with the podcast. Jim, thanks so much for giving us some of your valuable time. It's really fantastic to meet you. And actually, I have to make a confession that we've never met before, which just seems crazy after me being 15 years in the business and you being so many years writing your name and remembering that it only has one N and not two. (laughs) Very good. You're one of the few who knows that. <laughs> we also learned that Buffet is, you know, Buffett is not Buffet. <laughs> got one of those surnames. Obviously, I, I really shouldn't speak. I've got a most terribly impossible to spell surname myself. But anyway, Jim, congratulations on the Aerial Redeal. What are your plans for the business? Well, thank you. Our plans are to build a premier reinsurance underwriting manager. I think we've got uh, a great team under the leadership of Ryan Mather and the Aerial team. We're taking 
over 60 people as part of the transaction. And we're building a really a third-party capital manager in the reinsurance space located in Bermuda. It's riding on Lloyd's. So we have I and our other co-investors are putting uh, capital in Lloyd's for Ariel to write business on. And we have substantial amount of third-party capital also on the syndicate we're using. And we're bringing in some new, really first-class, I would say names, but they're not <laughs> literally Lloyd's names, first-class corporate capital to this operation. So I'm really excited about it. And when you say build, one of the things about Ariel is it's had lots of owners since Don Kramer started it up all those years ago, but it's had quite a good, a lot of continuity in its core. Do you think it's readily formed and you don't have to do much with it? It's a very good base. So it is not a turnaround. I knew when it's knew it from when it started, I admired it. I always thought it was a good operation. And when we dug into it with our due diligence, it was actually even better than I expected in terms of, I, I basically liked everything I saw, but there is an opportunity to substantially improve on what's there. We've got one of the uh, key people involved with this is Giant Kedelker. Giant, in my view, is the uh, top cap modeler <laughs> in the in the business. He built all the systems at Renry when we started. He built the Tiger systems. Before that, he was one of the first people at AIR. So, I mean, he's part of the Pelican team to really do one more level of optimizing the CAT portfolio. And so we really think we can even build on the success that Ariel already has. You've already mentioned that, of course, Ariel already has a corporate capital helping to back the syndicate as well as its own capital. So, and you said you're going to build a, a big third-party capital manager. So we'll be expecting... Other ventures, different um, balance sheets, different named ventures, a bit like, obviously, you were a pioneer at all of that with Top Layer and your other ventures that you did at Renry. Should we be expecting similar things, similar vehicles? Well, I think, I mean, right now, we're 100% focused on our Lloyd's operation. And we have some very good support that Ariel already has that is continuing. But we're bringing in several new organizations that providing capital support and very sophisticated and prominent names, organizations. So the current phase is based entirely on Lloyd's. Where we will build this in the future, TBD, we do intend to build this to be a very significant manager of reinsurance risk to third-party capital. So whilst I know you're on the island of Bermuda, you're a legend of, of Bermuda and you're one of the people who's really built that marketplace over the last 27, 28 years. Currently, you'd say we rule out any sort of immediate plans for a balance sheet domiciled on Bermuda, for example. Yeah, because, um, I mean, that's not necessary for us right now. And that takes a lot of capital. It takes a lot, a lot of capital. And we're quite happy to operate through the Lloyd structure now, so... On that subject, I was reading up the first interviews you did over this with Ariel after the purchase was announced. You said that you'd be category killers in a few lines of business. Can you elaborate a bit on that strategy, Jim? Well, I always want to target a few areas and have a true competitive advantage in those areas, whether it's an underwriting advantage or an expense advantage. I have never subscribed to the idea of trying to be all things to all people. And, and um, I also think the concept of diversification is overrated. You do need diversification and risk management that is critical, but 
I don't know who coined the phrase, but people talk about diversification, which is just adding a bunch of stuff that all it does is drag your results down. So I would rather be a specialist, certainly in Worldwide Property Cat, but there's other areas. We write U.S. casualty business. We write some credit business, marine business, and there could be others that we're going to develop. And there will be just targeted specialty segments in those areas where we think we understand the risk. Uh, Rod and I have invested in a couple of uh, primary MGAs, and it's the same thing. One of the successful ones that we've since exited, but focused entirely on cat-exposed homeowners outside of Florida. And uh, it's uh, called Sageshire. It's run by uh, Terry McLean and, and Andy DiLoretto, and it's uh, very, very successful but focused on um, just being really good in one business line. I've always found that a better way to make money in the insurance business is focus. I was racking my brains and it was VJ Dowling. I think he must have coined the phrase diversification. I think he did, yes. And I think that's a very good phrase. I don't want him to give me a hard stare next time (laughs) I bump into him in an event somewhere. So it's really about focus and about you can diversify, but you better diversify into something that you really believe that you're market leading at or as good as you can possibly be at and you have already have a comparative advantage in and then you can reap those benefits of diversification. But there's no point in diversification for diversification's sake, just because you're looking at the capital, the way it affects your capital loadings and stuff. Yeah, one of the most dangerous phrases in the insurance business, and I mean, remember this back to my early career, is an organization saying it has excess capital that it has to utilize. I've seen a lot of money given away in the name of utilizing your excess capital. Capital is always a scarce resource. That notion of that this is kind of a free ride. We've got all this stuff over here. And then if we write, so, you know, we write Florida, but if we write Japan as well, then we get a free ride on that and we improve our returns to no end. But I suppose you better understand, you better have a view of what Jeff Yeah, really yeah a, lot, a lot of money has been lost using that theory. I was going to ask you what time frame you've got for your investment in Ariel. Is something forever, something for the grandkids? Um, you know, it's not a short-term time frame, but it's not sort of my uh, the way I'm ending my career either. It is an investment. I'm non-executive chairman. We have an investment venture company called Pelican Ventures. And um, I expect to be involved with this for a long time, but not necessarily forever. I was chairman and owner of Tiger Risk for, I guess, 12 years, and I've stepped away from that. So now you're free. This is going to be your main day job now. Well, it'll be my largest single activity. I do have, we do have other investments in Pelican that I have an involvement with. And um, I've been CEO, I've been chairman I know the difference. This company is going to be managed by management and uh, Ryan, and uh, I will play the role of uh, chairman, but I'm not going to get in their way on an so operational not exec- basis. Not executive in any, in any sense of that? No, no. There for advice and to hold their feet to the fire on behalf of the investors, one presumes. Right, exactly, exactly. Jim, I think you're building a third-party management business. I'd love to pick your brains about what the ideal balance is between your own capital, your own balance sheet, and the capital that's being committed to you that you're managing on behalf of third parties. Is it a really difficult balancing act? And is there an optimum balance? Or does it really just depend on what the state of the market is and what the opportunities are? I think the key issue is that the people whose capital you're managing have to be comfortable 
that our interests are aligned and that I and the rest of the investors have substantial skin in the game. And I mean, I don't think it's any different than in a private equity fund. Third-party limited partners in a private equity fund want to see the fund managers have a big slug of capital in the same funds. And so I expect uh, that I and the other investors will have a very meaningful exposure to the results here and that the capital expects that. And that's really, in my mind, the only thing that determines the balance. As long as it's enough to make the investors really clear that you're all in this together and that yeah. you're not just writing for commissions. Right. You're old enough to have been through a few hard markets because I think some of the complaints about people of, of over a certain age in this market is that some of these young kids have never had a hard market, so they don't know what to do, which is quite interesting. You're a veteran of plenty of hard markets, and obviously Renry was born into one of those. So using the benefit of that experience, how does this hard market compare with previous hard markets in your career? From a detail point of view, I, I'm not sure I can really answer that very well. I certainly hear from what, what I hear through brokers I know and Tiger Risk and other brokers and through underwriters that I know that this is the real deal. There really is a significant and broad hardening. And in my view, I've been involved with a number of startups throughout my career. And to me, the importance of a hard market is for a startup is it's you have the ability to get the business. So it isn't so much that the margins are bigger in a hard market. They are, but that's not why the hard market is so important. It's that the business is available to a newcomer because otherwise, I'm sure there's a counter examples, but I can't think of any reinsurance startups that started in a soft market that succeeded. Maybe there are some and I'm forgetting them, but it, it is just so hard. And I mean, I've seen some really good managements and good business plans not do so well starting in soft markets because you can't get the business and then you have to strain to try to get it. So that to me is what's key about this market. And now we're starting with an existing portfolio of over $500 million of premium, but this will give us the opportunity to grow that portfolio and modify that portfolio in ways that we want to, the ways that we would not have been able to in a soft market. So it's really about getting that showing because I suppose you can have the best modelers in the world, you can have the best plan and know which exactly how much of which risk on which layer you would want to construct the perfect portfolio that would always make you great returns in whatever happens. But if you don't actually get shown the business in the first place, you're nowhere, right? Right. And for you, is it really only that it's enough that it is a hard market? It's a binary thing. Is it a hard market? Yes or no? Do we get shown? Well, we're going to get a good showing of business and you don't worry about the nature of this hard market? Something about this hard market that seems a bit strange is that if there's no shortage of capital, it seems to be that it's more the discipline of capital has come back, that the backers of that capital want to make sure they get proper returns. That is true that that would be a strange situation in a hard market, because usually hard markets happen when people get their pens taken away, either because they run out of money to write on or they lose their jobs or capacity is cut. But I do think, I mean, certain segments of the capital, I think, are pulling back in this market. So I think that there is a capital contraction issue here. So it's not binary, of course. I mean, there are degrees of hard or soft markets. But I am convinced that this market is significantly hard enough that it's worth entering at this point, that it'll give us an entry point to build a business. After that, it's a micro game. I mean, it's 
It's not just, okay, it's hard market, so we're going to make a lot of money. It's, are we writing risk A or risk B? And we have to be really good at uh, assessing risk. And I would say that in my experience is it's not as hard to maintain portfolio quality as one might think as a market softens. You just can't maintain top line. For example, my experience at Renaissance was once the market softened, our portfolio quality roughly stayed the same, maybe degraded a little bit. But what happened was our top line fell because we couldn't find as much of that quality business. Once you're on the quality risks, the risks that you believe are better, say, out of many different Floridian seasons, we know that they are different and they do behave differently when stressed. Are you happy just to get onto those what you believe to be the higher quality risks and then just allow that premium to go down and that you keep with those good risks? Or do you just have to let some of them go? That's a really interesting, and that gets to the micro question. It's a very important question because there's two contradictory, I mean, there's two different things happening. First of all, I kind of subscribe to the adage, there's no such thing as a bad risk, there's just bad prices. But also quality of the client and continuity with the client is really important. That always is the toughest decision is when a good long-term client's pricing falls to an unacceptable level. And I mean, those are the hardest questions. As we've already discussed, when it's so hard to get onto those really quality risks, the quality seedants, the ones that you really know are superior, you want to hang on to them, don't you? And you really don't want to let them go, especially if you've got this optimistic side, the market's going to come back in a couple of years, so I don't want to lose touch with these risks. Those decisions just have to be made on a case-by-case basis. I mean, I value long-term and stable relationships, and at what point the economic terms get so bad that you can't continue, that's... um, Hopefully, from a practical point of view, that doesn't happen as often as you know one might think, I would say. I suppose we're lucky that given the state of the market right now, that's a very long way off, that kind of stuff. It's all very philosophical. Right. I wanted to ask you about what you think the state of the ILS market is. Perhaps that was a market that suffered from perhaps a lack of discernment. That was a volume kind of market and a commoditized, very commoditized market. Do you think What's happened in the last few years has shown up its limitations, or do you think they're just growing pains on the way to maturity because it's still a very new asset class? Here's where I might get myself in trouble because I've never been a fan of that's overstating it somewhat. I think that in theory, ILS structures make sense, but I think a lot of stuff that happened over the last number of years was really naive capital. And some of the problems that occurred now are it was a slow motion train wreck, it's predictable. So I can remember in the late 90s, a, an ILS writer, a proponent of ILS, was explaining to me why Renaissance Re was going to be out of business in a couple of years because the market would all be ILS. It was probably around the time when everyone was saying that everyone would securitize everything. I think it was around right. the time when David Bowie had uh, securitized <laughs> some of the future revenues from his albums and, and other things. But uh, yes, it was a peak time for the hubris around some of that. I'm going to pick your brains again. You are an industry visionary, Jim. I don't know whether you accept that or not, but I think certainly as a journalist, our job is to dish out these titles and you're certainly you're in the list of that. So what do you see coming along? What challenges and opportunities do you see coming for the industry over the next decade? Yeah, actually, I think there's two and a half, I got two and a half fundamental points, two big ones and one less big one. The first one is the explosion in data available. We used to have ISO and company databases, and now you've got downloads from Apple Watches, you've got aerial photography, 
you've got the internet of things and everything's monitored. In addition, yeah, I mean, it's transforming everything in business and it's going to transform insurance because you now have a whole lot more data to make risk predictions. And then once you make risk predictions, you can actually use that as a marketing channel to go tell people, hey, I want to insure you because I've found this out about you. Now, that's a very broad point and it's going to take a long time for that to be effective, but it's an inexorable trend. It's one at Pelican we're very focused on. So what do you think you have to be to be ready to make sure you're not going to get wiped out by that kind of thing? It's not going to happen overnight. So, I mean, it's not going to be like one day you're doing great and the next day you're wiped out. I mean, it gets into the insure tech model. I think the major industry players are actually better positioned in a lot of ways. I think a number of these insure techs have business models that are the way business will be done in the future. So they're right, but that doesn't mean they're going to be the ones that monetize that. Excel didn't invent the spreadsheet. Started with Lotus 123. So it isn't always the first one through. I guess the, um, you can tell the pioneers because they have the arrows in their backs. The settlers get the land is one uh, statement that explains that. So one of my last comments about that is it gets back to the, in my opinion, the hardest thing in the business is acquiring business. And the most expensive thing is the cost of acquiring business. So an organization that has a huge customer base is a huge advantage versus somebody who's out there with a great business model, but that has to acquire customers. And that is really expensive to acquire those customers. So that's trend number one. Trend number two is the expenses in the insurance business have got to go down dramatically. You can't be a financial intermediary effectively with the kind of expense stuff that goes on in the insurance chain. So a significant portion of those expenses just have to be squeezed out. I'm not saying I know how to do it, but it's got to happen. And then I think the third thing that is important is the adjustment to zero interest rate environment. That appears like that's going to be reality for a while. And it really shakes up an industry whose business model has been making it on investment income. And it flips around. And it also, the other side of that coin is, as a third-party capital manager, if your alternative is treasury rates of less than 1%, or you can invest in some uh, risky sovereign bond of some country that defaults all the time for, I don't know, 6% or something, you know, earning 8% on a diversified asset class, if you're really going to earn 8%, can look pretty good. I think that return hurdles, if people really are comfortable and believe that the returns are there, and that was the problem with the ILS market is, I mean, there was a lot of stuff about, oh, these are great returns, but there was more risk than I think uh, folks had uh, bargained for. I was just wondering, what was a 10-year treasury yield in 1993, Jim? Probably nearer 10% than one. It wasn't that high, but yeah, when we started Renaissance, it would have been uh, four or something like that, if I remember correctly. What you mentioned about the advantage or potential advantage that incumbents or the settlers have over the pioneers in InsureTech, is that also, you don't have that expense of acquiring customers, which is a terribly expensive thing to do to churn and customer acquisition costs. Is another advantage just your experience, the the loss experience, when you can marry some of this data and expertise and actually put it on to your own loss experience that you've earned by paying for it and costing you many millions and billions over years to have acquired? Is that a key advantage as well? In theory, yes, but I'm not sure if organizations are effectively capturing that advantage. I mean, the whole model, as I understand it in Silicon Valley, is that 
what is valuable is the database. A proprietary database is how you create value and your ability to use that database. And so insurance companies should have an advantage there, whether they are effective in really using the most modern big data techniques and marrying the data they have with the external databases. I suspect some are doing a good job and some aren't. So Jim, you've always been an early adopter of almost, I suppose we described REN as being the first quants of insurance and reinsurance. So I presume but I'm going to ask you just to check that the idea of algorithmic underwriting in this new digital world and some of this automatic provision of capital, that that appeals to you? Well, sort of, you know, it's funny. I mean, this stuff comes in fashion, but then it gets way, the pendulum swings way too far. So, you know, my entire career starting in 1971 as an actuary, I've been in the business of prediction and using data for prediction. And I'm hesitant because I can't remember who this quote came from, but uh, it's one of my favorites is it's hard to make predictions, particularly about the future. Sounds uh, like Yogi so, Berra, it's a Yogi Berra type thing. We'll have, we can I'm look it up sure and put it, it in the notes if we can't. Yeah, please. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. It might have been. But anyway, whoever it was, prediction is really hard. I mean, look at the election results. I mean, you've got some very sophisticated, tons of data modeling, and they still are off in that. So yes, I believe in prediction and I believe it's powerful, but there's an awful lot of bad predictions being made. The trick is to figure out the predictions that you want to bet money on versus bad predictions. So when you get to this algorithmic underwriting, I think most of it's BS. I guess that's overstating it because you do need basic algorithms. And it gets back to my point of you want to cut expenses out of the business. Therefore, if a decision can be made by a machine and you don't need a human, you can define a box then it should be underwritten that way. So actually, that kind of algorithm underwriting is good. So in, in the primary business, defining a box uh, for workers' comp business or auto business, I think that's very appropriate. But to try to apply that to treaty reinsurance underwriting, there's so many variables. The models, you're dealing with much smaller databases, so therefore the statistical prediction ability is much uh, weaker than it is in the primary business. I think that's just dangerous. Whenever I see an investment advertisement on the London Underground, it always says at the bottom of the FCA warns that the past is not a very good predictor of future performance. Is that really the ultimate problem of predicting future that we're using in the past? And is it also that the past is less and less relevant because the rate of change seems to accelerate all the time? Things change faster than they used to, and therefore using the last few years' data is even worse at predicting the future, certainly than it was in 1971. Well, I think we're going to have to get into a uh, podcast on the uh, philosophical underpinnings of uh, probability and statistics, which is a fascinating area, but I think it's beyond the scope of this. It's not going to have mass appeal, I don't think. (laughs) Yeah, but those who are into it will really enjoy it. Okay, well, on that point about things getting faster and faster, this is something I'm sure I've got this from Rod, Rod Fox, speaking at an event about four or five years ago, and he had a big slide. And it was great because he's such a good speaker. And he had, I think he had a video of Godzilla, and but he had one of a waterfall of cascading downwards. And he said that that's the capital is getting down to the risk and it's inexorable. They can't stop it getting there. And it's going to get there quicker and it's going to bypass things it doesn't need to to get to risk. It wants the capital is out there and wants to underwrite. So what do you think ultimately the logical conclusion for that, particularly with this digital 
enablement of, of the marketplace, that things could be done much faster. And as a third party manager, could you bring all that together to be able to almost have a new vehicle for everything that walks through the door and package that risk very quickly out? Is that possible? Do you think it could be so fast that almost everything is done bespoke and each one has its own cap bond? Well, in in theory, yes, it's not going to happen during the career span of my kids because the practical problems, it's a good high-level theory. But once again, this gets back to the, the limits of predictability. Things, I agree with Rod on that. I do think in some ways things are changing fast. But actually, if I think back to issues in the insurance business starting in 1971 when I started and issues that are still there, things change slower than one might think when one is looking forward to change. So uh, I think being uh, just being aware of it, being a first mover, being focused and preparing yourself for these kind of changes, I think those folks will be the winners. I don't think there's going to be some master algorithm that uh, takes over the business, uh, at least in the foreseeable future. So there's still going to be underwriters, you're going to have all the digital tools, going to have all the analysis and everything else, but there's still going to be a human decision at the end to decide whether or not to write the risk at the highest end. But once again, I give you the example of, I mean, there is primary business, auto business, workers' comp business. You can write risks that are not touched by humans. You don't always need an underwriter, but you still, it's a very complicated problem to think about which risks need underwriters and which don't. And at what point do you kick a risk out of the system to an underwriter and how do you do that cost effectively? And it's frankly, the claims handling problem is at least as big, if not bigger than the underwriting problem in terms of how you make decisions to handle claims when you get, when you need humans involved, when you need attorneys involved, hugely complex problem in my view. And even if you automate parts, you still need someone controlling that automation to decide which bits you automate and when you automate and calibrate those decisions. In both underwriting and claims, you have a legal regulatory overlay also that you have a lot of compliance and standards that you have to meet. It's uh, So it's complicated and it's not going to be all programmed into a machine and for quite a while. But do you think regulators will be a drag on some of this because they're just not quick enough? I mean, I think you've got some people who are very quick and those who are not quick enough in the regulatory field and the underwriting field and the CEO suites. I mean, you know, you got, I wouldn't say it's the regulators. The regulators play an important role and uh, some of them are really good and some aren't so good the same way as underwriters. But I suppose an algorithmic regulator is a long way off still. I don't know. I mean, that's getting into that's <laughs> that's real philosophy. I think we can need to we need to read science fiction uh, to figure that one out. <laughs> sounds like uh, sounds like Dune. <laughs> Time to bring it back to brutal reality. Then, obviously, your business is brokered. MMC or JLT got together, and now we've got the prospect of this Willis Aon merger. Does it worry you at all to have that concentration? Uh no, no, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I've dealt in the broker market my entire career. And um, if I think of 10 things that uh, worry me about getting into this new business, that's not on the list. I always remember reading, say, Renry's annual result as one of the disclaimers would say, we get 83% of our business from these four brokers, Guy Carpenter, Aon, Willis, and at the time, Benfield. And be aware of that, because if we fall out with some of these, we might be in trouble. If that now goes down to two, is that a problem? No, but I mean... That was the lawyers writing that disclaimer. I was never 
concerned about getting the bulk of our business from four producers. It actually is more efficient than having to deal with a gazillion. So disclaimer was the job to think of anything that could possibly go wrong with the business and write it down. <laughs> so you don't really, you think it's just about keeping yourself relevant. If, if you're someone that these people need and they want to lead the business, then they're always going to be the path to your door, even if there's only one broker. It's our job to add value to our capital providers, to the brokers, and to our clients. If we're not adding value to their business models, then we're not relevant. We're a part of the whole ecosystem, and it's our job to be the, the easiest place to go to get a problem solved. And you relaxed about the natural order of things that bashing four brokers into two tends to create a lot of space for broker five, six, seven, eight, and nine to come up and invest and become a more important producer for you? Well, I'm not so much focused on the broker market. I mean, I spent 12 years with Rod building Tiger Risk. And I will say that is a hard market to enter. I underestimated when we started Tiger how hard it was to enter that market. So once we were in it, it actually was, well, that was a good thing. But I underestimated uh, how hard it was going to be to start it. But that's because the grass always greener and I had never started a broker before. So I said, oh, how hard can this be? Rod said, watch out. <laughs> You're going to be surprised. I mean, I do think there's a natural a cycle of consolidation and big is good. And everybody gets worried about consolidation, whether it's underwriters or brokers or whatever. And then there is a wave of smaller startups where folks like Renry and, uh, you know, I mean, you can go in and compete with major companies if you are focused and get the right team and uh, you can get capital backing these days. So you're going to have smaller startups and then some of them will grow bigger and then they'll consolidate and then there'll be the next round of the big ones and there'll be smaller startups. So, I mean, I think there is a a natural cycle in, in all of the spaces of the insurance business like that. So you'd say to the competition regulators, just to leave it alone and let it be? Well, yeah. I mean, I don't see, I mean, there's some businesses that there are antitrust issues in, but I don't think in the insurance business that I personally see any antitrust concerns. But actually, I'm not the expert on that. I'm not even that focused on that question. Well, coming near the end of our time, there's one thing I want to ask you, things that would have changed a huge amount in both of our careers and, and yours even more. Certainly in the last few years, the cultural issues around conduct in the insurance industry of how we all treat each other and our colleagues have come to the fore much more with Me Too and other things. As chairman, how will you be positioning Ariel to be ahead of that wave of change that seems to be really in train and breaking through the market? Well, I think company culture issues are hugely important. And I mean, as a, having been involved in a number of startups, I think the quality of management and the quality of the culture is right up there in top importance. And we spent a lot of time at Renaissance, for example, early on defining our culture and writing it down. And the same thing at Tiger. And I think the issues around Me Too and non-discrimination, that's vitally important. And uh, I got a daughter in the business. So I certainly want to see, and a son in the business, and I want to see them both treated fairly. That's just a given. I mean, it's competitive advantage. An organization that doesn't have a good culture is eventually going to be toast. I remember Neil Curry once mentioning about the no jerk rule. Was that one of your rules? Jim? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not sure. I, it was because we, our culture was very collaborative. We sat around a table and said, 
it wasn't just me saying, here's what the culture is. We were asking everybody, but I think that's probably one Neil came up with. That's a very important one. If you follow that rule regularly, then hopefully nothing else can go wrong. If, if it's also, don't be a jerk and don't hire jerks, it's probably a good thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, Jim, you've had an absolutely glittering career in reinsurance. And obviously that's terrible because that sounds like it's over, but you're just embarking on another big chapter in it. So really good luck with that. But I'd say definitely you're going to make it into the insurance pantheon. You've already booked your ticket into there, whether you like it or not. So if you get in there, what would you like your inscription to say? (laughs) Well, I'm going to do a little shameless self-promotion here because in addition to being uh, an insurance entrepreneur, I'm a musician. And I have um, put out my second album and it's doing, I'm very pleased by how it's doing. Uh, I have uh, Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul and Mary is uh, singing harmony on a couple of songs with me. I've got uh, Grammy nominated Kip Winger produced the album that's playing bass on it. And the title of the album is Color Outside the Lines. So I'm going to, I'm going to request my inscription to be, he colored outside the lines. That sounds great. Jim, we'll have to put a link to the music in the podcast. So you need to describe what, what sort of music is. So it's, is it folky or? Yeah, I mean, I grew up playing music in the 60s and, and early 70s. So it's folk Americana with a rock influence. That sounds really, really good. It sounds like what the world needs now. It's balmy <laughs> and soothing, soothing tones. Jim, thank you so much for your time. I really, really enjoyed the conversation. I mean, who knows? We've gone all around philosophy, music. You're a man of of many letters and numbers too. So I really, (laughs) really appreciate your time. Absolutely all the best with Ariel Ree. And please come back on the show and tell us how you're getting on, perhaps, you know, at some point in the future. Thank you so much. Great. Well, thank you, Mark. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, Don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan, in association with Advantage Go, enabling underwriters to increase the speed and accuracy of decision-making. Original music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.